Hallelujah. All right, everybody. Welcome, those of you listening online. We are continuing our series on the book of Acts, also known as the Pentecostal Handbook. We will be in Acts chapter 12, and we'll be seeing how Peter is imprisoned, but when the disciples pray, an angel comes and fetches him out of prison, and we're going to learn what God wants to teach us and what we'll teach the church through this story. I want to welcome up our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Y. Rostek. All right. Thank you for doing that, Jared, with the end of the year goodies, because I... Um... I always like to think of uh, a new year as a sign of a new life that God has given us, and it's good to always reflect on the things that we've had, amen? And I love that, that the password to God's presence is thank you. Gratitude will take you to altitudes. Man, it just I'm telling you that. Remember that gratitude will take you to new altitudes. Let's look at Acts chapter 12. It's a bit of a unique passage to be in uh, for today. Not a lot of, uh, thank you, sir, not a lot of uh, um, what we would say um, new doctrine to discuss. That's been a lot of what we've been going through, right? Uh, a lot of our discussions have been about doctrine and understanding the Trinity and understanding baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and those things. This is very much a narrative now showing you something that happened in Peter's life and with Herod. So I'm going to do the introduction here as well as give you some timelines with um, some maps. Just kind of tie some things together here that I think, uh, excuse me, two different timelines I think will tie some things together. Together. We learn in chapter 12 today in the Pentecostal handbook that despite heavy persecution from the Jews, God in his sovereignty protected Peter for future ministry and executed judgment on Herod for his role in executing, arresting, and murdering Christians. If you look right here, you'll see the timeline of where we're at here in the book of Acts. It may be a little bit difficult to see on the slide, but you know you can always go back to the notes and look at it. What we're right here is uh, at Peter arrest and the martyrdom of James, the brother of John. So we're right here at around uh, 41 to 44. Now, they give you the option to pick uh, the resurrection of Jesus to be 33 AD or 30 AD. Just out of my habit, I always think of Jesus starting his ministry at 30, being crucified, rose from the dead at 33. So I always take the later dating. So this would be at 44 AD. Um, the book of Acts starts around 33 uh, A.D., as we know, just you know, 50 days after Jesus ascends to heaven. And so from 33 A.D. till now, uh, 44 A.D., 11 years has passed. So that was a good uh, way for you to bring that up last week. I was a little bit off in my years. I was thinking only three to four years had passed uh, by the time we're, we're learning about uh, Peter witnessing. But no, five years, five years had passed. And then after Cornelius, just from chapter 11 to chapter uh, 12, which we're in right now, it seems that another four years have passed. Once again, I'm taking the later uh, writing here. Now... Um, we don't really understand or don't really have complete understanding of the timeline because they didn't really do it the way we do now, you know, like everything with the date and all of that. So it's difficult to get the precise location of where we're at 
in the time of, of history. But that's a good way to look at it, uh, especially as time is passing by. So years are passing by just between t- chapters. And then here, when we think about the big timeline from uh, the birth of, uh, of Saul and, and look at his life, we want to see what, go, what, what God is doing there in Paul's life here with the writings of the New Testament. So as we start getting into... Uh, these other chapters, you're going to start to see the New Testament being written while we're reading the book of Acts. And so this, uh, along with myself, believes that Galatians is the first book of the New Testament written right around 48, 49 uh, AD. And so for taking the timeline that we're on up here, uh, looking at the time of uh, Peter being imprisoned at being right around um, 44 AD, we're looking at probably in the next four years, which can happen in a chapter, right? Uh, Paul starts to write the New Testament. And they don't put in here the gospel writings, um, but the, the writings of Paul precede the, many of the Gospels. We believe that Mark is the first Gospel written by John Mark, who we're actually going to learn about right now in Acts chapter 12. We believe that that was um, uh, written around 60 A.D. So 60 A.D. is going to be the Gospel of Mark. That's going to be our first Gospel for taking the traditional scholarship. So just look at all the letters that come before the Gospel of Mark, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, and Romans. And as you notice here, they give you three different possible dates for Galatians. So depending on what date you pick for Galatians will depend on whether or not it's the first or the second book in the, in the New Testament. But it does seem, according to what I would just guess, in Paul's life and in the book of Acts and what he's dealing with in Galatians, it would seem to be his first. But of course, this is all speculative because there's not really a time where Paul describes his writings like the way we would uh, think it to be described or, you know, in anything like an autobiography. Those just weren't the way things were done at that time. They didn't have the same way of writing, uh, like I said, with names and dates. Like, uh, just for example, when it comes to the gospel, sometimes people will say, well, they didn't say it was Mark. Mark doesn't identify himself. No uh, auto, uh, no, excuse me, no biographies, and that's a biography is written by somebody else. Auto is when you write yourself. No biographies of the ancient world list the author. It was considered rude to do that. It was considered disrespectful, so they didn't put their name in their biography. Now, it was just common practice. So once again, it's not uh, like we're doing something wrong by assigning the names because of church history. No, that's how you would know. That would be the only way you can know. And so sometimes people want to be like super skeptical and be like, we don't know, and we don't know this, and we don't know that. Well, if you do that, you just have to throw out the entire history of the ancient world. And uh, there's no way that we're going to throw out the, uh, the ancient history of the, of the world. It says um, the book of uh, Jose is correcting me, saying that the book of Acts starts after uh, Pentecost, but he's right. It doesn't start after Pentecost. It starts before Pentecost. So thank you, brother, for tuning in live and, and, and helping me correct that mistake. I always appreciate that. So I think this gives you guys a good outline of what's going on. I got these two from my Bible software I don't even know which um, commentaries these came from, but here is an overview of the timeline of the book of Acts. 
which does start before Pentecost, not after Pentecost. And then here is the timeline of Paul's life in the New Testament writings. So what I want to try to do when we start getting into Paul and his journeys, I want to start showing you um, where he's writing these letters. So he makes the visit to, uh, uh, Paul makes the the visit to Jerusalem, that's where we're at right now, to bring famine relief. So we're right here at 44 AD, and that's also where Peter gets arrested. And then he starts his first missionary journey in the next chapter. And I kept saying that chapter 11 marked the end of Peter's ministry in the book of Acts. This is the end. Chapter 12 marks the end. We will not hear about Peter again until he's mentioned just briefly in the um, the Council of Jerusalem, and he just tells his testimony a little bit there. So really, in the next chapter, we're going to start Paul's missionary journey. That's pretty cool. Like at the beginning of the year now, we'll go into missionary journeys, which that's going to be really a key to understanding a lot of the New Testament writings, how the churches are established. Even Jesus, when he's judging the churches in the book of Revelation, those are mostly Paul's churches that he started. So this, just starting the new year with Paul's missionary journey, I think, will be neat. And then, as you can see, right there, there, somewhere right around the Jerusalem Council, right around that time of 4950, uh, which we believe is before, uh, uh, after rather, Galatians is written, because it sounds like Galatians is dealing with something that hasn't had official precedent yet. So that's why I believe Galatians comes before Thessalonians, because the Jerusalem Council happens before he does all of this other uh, ministry here to these places and starts writing to them. So I just, I just think that Galatians is a non-settled issue. Now that's going to help, uh, that's, that's what uh, scholars do in, when they debate. They don't know for sure, but one of the keys here of dating Galatians is going to be, is Paul writing after the Council of Jerusalem, or is he writing before the Council of Jerusalem? Now, in my opinion, he's writing before, because why? He doesn't make any mention of the Council of the Jerusalem. But that's the whole entire problem, is what must the Jews do to be saved? Okay, there's a little background information. Let's go now into Acts chapter 12, short chapter. Two powerful things are going to happen here. We're going to see about Peter being delivered and Herod being judged. Now I want to say this as well as a possible second introduction. As I was listening to this, I mean, it's so short. I don't know. I might listen to it 10 times on my way here today. One of the things that stuck out to me is that this is not fiction, but it contains what we would consider supernatural events that many might say are fictional events. Let me just tell you the story real quick. Peter gets delivered out of jail by angels, and Herod gets cursed by God and dies because of worms in his stomach. Now, when you hear these two stories, you might think to yourself, this is a fiction, this is a myth attached to the church to somehow give them validity, to somehow make it look like God is among them. And even you'll hear these kind of accusations against the Bible today. But I want you to think about this as we're reading it. Does it read as myth? Now, most of you probably have never read ancient literature, so you wouldn't know the difference between an ancient storytelling myth or ancient historical record. I have, and I have commentaries that have, and I can tell you about this. This is not written at all like myth. This is written as historical commentary. Now, what's the issue here is that in the historical commentary are supernatural events. 
But here's the thing about these supernatural events. They don't happen in a way that would be embellishing, the say, say, the story of uh, Caesar's birth or these kinds of things. Because as a matter of fact, it's interwoven in the most strangest way. For example, we hear about this miraculous deliverance of Peter. But right before we hear about Peter's miraculous deliverance, we hear that James, the brother of John, just gets killed. Boom, over, lights out, story done. You see, if it was a myth or we were, uh, or the Christians were adding myth onto the church, the stories of the church, to make it sound like we're so awesome, why would one of the main disciples, it was always Peter, James, and John, just get killed so quickly without even a mention of his birth? Why not tell a story that he was delivered? Why not say that he got rescued and he was now delivered and he lives somewhere off in the mountains somewhere? And even his death is not even a big deal. We hear more about Stephen's death, who was just a deacon, than we do about one of Jesus' original 12. Now, we know from a Christian standpoint that this is inspired and God has given us all that, just what we need. But something that I want you to think from a historical point of view, they're not hiding any facts. They're condensing years of material into a way that you can get the most benefit out. That's the natural audience. That's what they're thinking, the natural writing sense. Because when God inspires us, he uses natural means, okay? So it's not like it's, it's just, you know, it just takes us over and they start as if, you know, it was a graph being done by a computer, like, you know, something like that. You, you, you're looking at the actual... Um, mindset of a believer that time that God is using in an inspirational way saying, I want this to be written down. So God is breathing through them, but using natural means, okay? And, and so what we see here is that to them, it wasn't important to deify or to mystify their leaders. Leaders were dying. That was commonplace. This is a, this is a road mark here that they wanted to let you know. People are dying. We're getting arrested. But then here's something that happened with Peter. And so this doesn't have the ring of trying to make us look awesome. And then the thing about Herod's death, this is what's really interesting, and if I get time, I'll read it, is that Josephus, a Jewish historian, records almost identical the same, same story. And so why would the church put this into the context of their belief system when it was already pretty much known among the Jews and other people as a historical fact why would they do that unless it was to show what they believed was the answer to his death, which is this, this death was a curse. It was the reason for uh, his death is, is, is happening because he was cursed for, for arresting Christians. See, for us in the Christian sense, it just makes sense to write a story like this. There's nothing here that's mythological. It's basically telling the story about Christians dying, some very important ones, but God occasionally spares them. We, we don't hear this all the time that they get spared, like Paul had to be let down in a basket. But here, Peter gets let out in the middle of the night. But Peter eventually gets crucified upside down. The church uh, history tells us that. And, other, and, and, and others of them die. So why is this happening in this book? Why would you take the time to do this if it wasn't literally history? And the importance of it was to see these two main points, that Jesus is protecting the church in a sovereign way when he wants to get that message out. And I think that kind of goes back to that Mark 16 understanding where it's like they can drink deadly poison, they can pick up serpents. It's this idea that until God says it's time, it's not, 
It's not, until he says it's time, you're not going to die. And then this thing about Herod says God is also doing judgment. But there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. There's things that seem out of control. But there's judgment here coming upon the world. And as you trace the nations, history of nations actually, God is always interweaving himself in and out of history, leaving what we would say is a, um, we would say these are um, signposts of the divine. There's another way of, of, of saying this, something of the transcendence. There's a word, there's a, there's a nice, cute word to say about historical, um, I'll have it come to me, but it shows transcendence. It shows God in the midst of his people. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute, him, persecute them. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Right there, once again, nothing mythological there. John does die. It happens. Boom. It's over. We don't need to mystify it. It happened. But now we're going to learn about a certain story with Peter. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter as well. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers. So there's 16 people watching him. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So while Peter, excuse me, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, once again, let's just think about this. Do you think the church earnestly prayed, prayed for John? Yes or no? Yeah, but John got put to the death. Do you, uh, James, thank you. James got put to the death. So do you see that this doesn't make us look good if we're trying to add myth? Why not add the myth every time we prayed for our people, they were delivered? Does everybody get that? Okay, let me just back up a little bit because I want you to get it a little bit better. The accusations, today maybe we'll get a little theological, but it won't come from the text itself. It will just come from an overview of looking at the text. One of the accusations you'll get from atheists, non-believers, is that this is just all made up. It is just made up that there's angels that are delivering people. It's made up that there was Pentecost. I mean, there's no God. There's no supernatural. These are just historical. Uh, these are just myths set in historical times. Okay, these are written many, many years after the time of the disciples. Whatever we know about Jesus, we know very little. Whatever we know about his disciples, we know very little. These are people writing 50, 60, 70, 80 years after Jesus. That's what they'll say. But even though it's much closer to the, to, to the time of Jesus, let's say the book of Acts, we may have them in the first century documents and then references to it as early on as Paul, okay, in his writings. And, and we have uh, proof that that's written in the first century as well. But let's say this is in the second century, right? 110 AD, whatever. Okay, that's what they're going to try to say, push this narrative on you, that, that this is like um, me writing myth now about um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. As far distanced as I am from Martin Luther King Jr. right now is as far distanced as they are from the actual events. And it's just all myth. Why would they do that? Why would they say that John dies, but then we pray for Peter and something happens to Peter? Because it's already just, you're already knowing, like, they must have prayed for, uh, I said John again, didn't I? Sorry, James. James died. Who, who died? James. James. Okay. So why would they give us that information? Because they're honestly telling us the truth. Now, how should this encourage you? Sometimes you pray and see the answers. Sometimes you pray and don't see the answers. Right? Does that encourage you? I don't know if that encourages you. That encourages me. That encourages me. 
Because what if I pray, what if we all go to jail right now and you die? Do I stop praying? Do I stop praying if one of you dies while we're in jail, being persecuted? No, I keep praying. God, okay, it was time to take home Ashley. Let's pray now that you save Lawrence. Okay, Lawrence dies. Okay, let's pray for the next one. God, if it, you know, if it's your will, get us out of here. I'm going to keep praying until I see God move or until I go to heaven and I don't need to pray anymore. That's it. That's the encouragement here is that there's real persecution. There is real death. They are not walking around as supermen. We just learned from chapter 11 to 12, which I just caught here in the timeline, four years has passed. Just like I said, if you told my whole life of Christianity, you might think I was always walking in the supernatural. Even if you just took right now 20 years and put it into 29 chapters, you're going to be skipping years. You're going to be thinking, every day I have prophetic dreams. Every day God answers my prayers. Every day I get a, um, a miracle in the mail, as it were, a financial blessing. But that's not true. There are times where I pray and it doesn't happen. And that's something we just missed right there. If we don't, We're going to miss it if we don't stop. They, of course, prayed for James. But James died. So here they are now with Peter. Peter's in prison. Verse 5, but the church was earnestly praying for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two guards, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Now, once again, why is that important to put here? See, do you get what's going on right here? Maybe this is not as big of a deal as it was to me today, but as I was listening to it, all I kept hearing through all these verses was, this is history. This is not happening. Some, there's two reasons, put it this way. There, there are two reasons why you can look at this as history. Number one, there is nothing mythological about the places and the people here. This is not on Mount Olympus with Zeus. These are literal people and places. This is not embellished history now with literal people and places as sometimes they would do with their, their Caesars and their leaders because it always is to their embarrassment and it shows that it doesn't always happen. Okay, this is not normal for them. It shows that they prayed, and sometimes it doesn't work. John died. And then here, to their embarrassment, Peter doesn't even know what he's having happened to him. So you can literally see this as a recollection. I hear this all the time when people recall their testimonies to me of what they've seen God do. I didn't even know that was what was happening. I was just praying for this guy, and then they started, he started manifesting a demon, and then I you know, started casting out a demon. I, literally, that's how I would tell the story of me casting out demons in India the last time I was there, is there was a man in the woman's section, after I said amen to the prayer, he comes up hollering and screaming. I had no idea that he had demons. I thought there was just a problem, that maybe something's going on. And then I realized it is a demon, so we brought him up. But it was a, a shock to me. It, so I wasn't in control of the situation. I wasn't trying to bring someone up and say they have demons. Do you get what I'm saying? This, this is something I was thrown into unexpectedly. Oh, who's this dude coming out of the women's section? What is the commotion? I don't know what the commotion was. Then they're bringing them, him to me saying he's demon-possessed, right? That's many times how these stories are brought about. 
just like Peter here. He said, I, I didn't even know I was in real life. I thought I was having another vision. I, I thought I was in a trance, right? So Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Now watch this. Once again, just historical information. Not everything is like uh, Philip floating from one place to the next. Why is it that they actually say here, they walked the length of one street? Why doesn't it say he just took him out of the prison and then he just floated to the house? You know, because isn't that the way it's supposed to happen? And if we're writing myth and we already got people flying around, you know, like Philip being transported, why, why not just do it now? Of course we would do it now. It's an angel. Angel doesn't have to walk the length of a street. The angel can just go from here to there. Done. There we go. Just happened. But no, historical narrative. Do you see the signpost of transcendence? That's the phrase I was looking for. The signposts of transcendence. This is Luke, the historian of the first order, a historian of the first order, one of the best, if not the best, of the ancient world at this time. And he's interweaving into the stories the supernatural power of God, and he's not doing it to show off, and he's not doing it in a way that is unnatural to the church at that time. He's simply sharing the records of what they have observed and what has happened. And so while he's hearing this story, it's probably coming directly from Peter or his associate, Mark, who helped him write the Gospel of Mark. Like I said, we'll learn about John Mark here in just a moment, who had two names. We combined them together, but it was actually two names, one Greek, one Roman. I mean, uh, one, um, one Jewish, John, and Mark, one, one Greek, Roman name that he would use for his Roman citizenship of Greek origin. Just make sure that Mark's of Greek origin. Um, and so... You could see Peter telling a story. I didn't know if I was in a vision or if I was in a dream, but I know I walked a, I walked a block. I went down the street, and then the angel left me. That's how I ended up there at the house, you know, or whatever. Once again, a signpost of transcendence. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Thank you. His Roman name, Latin, and the reason why I got it confused there is because they used either Greek or Latin names for Roman citizenship. Now, you, I, I think you could have a Hebrew name and still be a Roman citizen, but it just seems like that played nicely with the church at that time for, for other historical reasons we don't have to get uh, into right now. Verse 12, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. Now we know. John also called Mark. Not a transformational name change, not, not like a Peter. This is just like a Paul and a Saul. They had two names, one John of uh, Hebrew origin, Mark, one of Latin origin. And Mark would have to do with his citizenship, where many people had gathered and were praying. So he shows up at a prayer meeting. Now watch the embarrassment here again. This time it's not on Peter. It's on the girl they actually mentioned, Rhoda. See, this is not myth with mythological names and places, and this is not embellishment. This is true history. 
Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. Now, you don't hardly meet any people named Rhoda, but that would be a great Bible name. And I would like to bring that back, actually. I would like to bring some of these Bible names back. Rhoda is a wonderful name that was mentioned here because she was part of the early church. A servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Once again, we hear the name of the girl and the embarrassing thing she did. What embarrassing thing did she do here? She didn't let Peter inside. And because she didn't let Peter inside, she gets ridiculed. If you were Rhoda, would you want this story to be in the everlasting word of God? That you forgot to open the door and that then you were ridiculed? Because if she would open the door and brought him in, she wouldn't have been ridiculed, right? See, this is historical narrative. These are real people and places. They're telling you these details so that 2,000 years later, they didn't know how long the Lord would tarry, but Luke is telling you these details as the historian of, of the book of Acts here, the author, so that you and I can take confidence in this. That 2,000 years from that time, we can take confidence and really understand what God is doing. Let me just... Sorry, just had to take a few moments to do some household business. Spiritual papa in the house. When he had dawned on, this had dawned on him, he goes to the house, knocks on the door, Rhoda answers it. She gets so excited, she leaves him at the door. She wants to tell everybody else what's going on. They then ridicule her, and then they say, well, if anything, it must be his angel. Now watch this again here. This right here is another embarrassment. Do Christians believe that you have angels that are made in your image? Yes or no? No, is there any doctrine in the New Testament that teaches this? No, so what does this say about the person who said that? They were superstitious. So we don't even get an accurate account, uh, I mean a, a, a praiseworthy account from the Christians. Rhoda makes the mistake by being neglectful of even letting Peter in, and then they make the mistake of not being believing. And then they go one step further by not believing, just as doubtful as uh, the men were when the women testified of the, of the empty tomb. We now learn that they're still carrying old Jewish wives' tales, fables, things that Paul will have to correct later on. Stop believing these Jewish wives' tales. Stop talking about this stuff. It's silly. Does that speak well of the early church? Is that if you were writing myth, would you make mythological characters that forget to open the door, that say things that are superstitious, that you don't even want your people to believe? So if I'm now starting a quote-unquote new movement 50 years after the time of Jesus, wouldn't I insert into these people's mouths the doctrine I want them to believe? Wouldn't I want them to be accurate, on point, having the narrative fit with my doctrine? I wouldn't want them going against the very doctrine I'm teaching them. I wouldn't want to have to put in the narrative things I'm going to have to put in my so-called epistles that correct them. 
But that's exactly what's happening. That's the historical narrative. I, between you and I, just so you can know what the Lord is doing, I'm going on a journey right now in this moment with you guys in a beautiful place of historical authenticity. I hope you're enjoying this right now because I am really getting a lot out of this. And what had happened, Jared, is that I always prepared the sermon beforehand, but by coming here and listening to the chapter over and over again by the audio Bible, it just stuck out to me. Just this is historical narrative. And so I hope that you guys enjoy it. But Peter kept knocking at the door. He's there knocking. What happened to Peter? He's still out there. They're being superstitious and forgetful at the door, so Peter keeps knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. See, they're not saying, well, of course that's what happened. We prayed for this. No, they were astonished. Well, we prayed for James, and it didn't happen. Wow, it, you know, God answered this prayer. Verse 17, Peter motions with his hand for them to be quiet. Maybe he did it with this way, you know. Just like that. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about Jesus, he, he said, and then they left for another place. Well, I thought James died. What James is this that's still alive? The brother of Jesus, that's right, from the offspring of Joseph and Mary. And who was uh, uh, Jesus' other half-brother? That's an author of the New Testament. Jude, Correct. Now, what's interesting is that James becomes the leader of the church. Once again, if you were telling the mythological story of your people, why would you make one of the most insignificant people the leader of that church? Why not Peter, the one who Jesus spoke to all the time, the one who's having the first chapters of the Bible of the book of Acts written about, and the one who's experiencing all the miracles? Why isn't he in charge? See, historical narrative. James must have had the gift of leadership, and these other disciples recognized it. And he was one of the doubting people that mocked Jesus and said, well, if you're really the Messiah, then go to the temple and just tell everybody. Just go to this festival right now and tell everybody. And Jesus said, no, every time is good for you, but only, only the time the Father says is good for me is good for me. Only what the Father says I'm going to follow. You remember that conversation? And then another time he comes... The brothers come with Mary and say, get Jesus out. And I can just see the brothers talking on behalf of the mother. Get Jesus out. And he says, who's my mother, brothers and sisters, those who do the will of God? How is it now that Peter's accountable to this man? And when we get to the council of Jerusalem, it's Peter giving his testimony to this man to make the final word and to have the letter be sent out. We don't even know how that happened. To, that, to this day, it's a mystery. All we can do is just look at the signposts here and see like, well, Peter must be accountable to James. Maybe from this we can get that they were equals working together. But like I said, by the time you get to the council of Jerusalem, it's not what Peter says that's, that settles it. No, it's Peter collaborating with, with, with Paul to give a testimony to James and the other leaders to make their final decision. And this is what tells me, in my mind, that how Galatians comes after the council of Jerusalem is because in Galatians, Paul mentions his rebuke of Peter. So it hadn't been settled yet between him and Peter because by the time of the Council of Jerusalem, him and Peter are on the same side. Paul and Peter are together. Does everybody see what I'm saying? But in Galatians, in the book of Galatians, it doesn't look like him and Peter got it quite worked out yet. He's still having to correct him. And once again, if the book of Galatians, which we know predates the book of Acts, and people love to paint this picture, even Muslims will do this, they'll say Paul created Christianity. 
that there was probably this prophet named Jesus had some disciples. They died off early. They were persecuted. You know, Allah took Jesus to heaven. All of that happened. And then immediately this guy named Paul comes around, takes paganism, creates a new religion with, Chris, uh, with Jewish belief, calls it Christianity. And then that's why his guy Luke writes the account. He's the star of the show. It's his epistles that influence the gospel writers who really just took on the pseudo names of the apostles. But they were just his disciples making up stories to fit his doctrine. That's how they played out because Mark was one of his traveling companions. And Luke wrote the other gospel. Are you guys tracking with me? And since Matthew and Matthew is just like Mark and Luke, that's insignificant. And then John, we know, comes later. He's just a community. Uh, John is just a community, a community, communal gospel that was written by a church. It wasn't even just one author. It was multiple authors putting it together. And that's why it looks so similar to Gnostic writings. In the beginning was the word and all of this stuff, you know, Greek, Greek philosophy, logos. See, a lot of stuff you guys don't know. Some of you know, but you get my point. you got to understand your Bible. How do we just crush all of this? How do we crush all of this? Because right here, we see that this doesn't even help Paul. This is showing that there's another guy in charge, and his name is James. And so could this be the Roman Catholic handbook? No, it couldn't, because Peter's not in charge, the first pope. Could it be the, the atheist account of church history? Does this fit their narrative? Absolutely not. You see Peter just like an ordinary apostle, one of, one of many, submitting to one James, who wasn't even apostle, but's an elder in the church. He wasn't one of the original 12. And now we see that here, that, uh, that he's accountable to them, and that later on we're going to see as Paul's writing, they're all working it out together, that there isn't a collusion to change anything. There's really a discovery of what was already there. So they say, how did they make the canon? Well, they didn't make the canon. We discovered the canon. They wanted to discover where, where were those signposts of transcendence? Where was God leading, leaving the breadcrumbs for us to develop the doctrine and the, uh, what we call orthodoxy and orthopraxy of the church? Uh, uh, the, the orthodoxy with the ortho and then the doxy, doxology, the teaching, and then the orthy with the proxy, the practice. How do we get the orthodox doctrine, teaching, and practice? We get it from what the Holy Spirit is giving us here in this account by Luke. And it's honest, and it's forthright, and it sets things in order. And that's why we can accept this as the Pentecostal handbook, because we believe in a plurality of elders who are equally submitted to each other. Amen? Amen. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had happened or what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search, uh, excuse me, after Herod had a thorough search made for him, and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered them to be executed. This would be the same kind of penalty for the Roman guards that watched Jesus' tomb. Then Herod went from Judah to Caesarea and stayed there. Now we're going to move into a little bit about Herod. Now watch this. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. So there was a rebellion under his little kingdom here. And this was kind of what they would call like a vassal king. Um, as Rome would conquer nations, they would allow these kind of kings to be in place. And then they would rule through their governors. So you could think of like um, Caesar being the president of the United States, and then states, instead of having governors um, uh, and, and, and just one governor, they would have like two. And one governor would be like the king, the natural born person of that area. And then there would be like a Roman governor. And that would be like in this area, like who Pilate was. And then there there would be like a king operating as a governor. So two leaders over the state. Does that make sense? 
sense. And then in their head nation with Caesar, then they would have a senate made up of, of their officials as well. So they would kind of have a senate, they would have a Caesar, and then they would have vassal kings in these areas which in which their governors oversaw. That was always confusing to me, so I hope that you guys got that as well. Because how is there a king? Did you guys ever think to yourself, how is there a king in the Roman Empire? Anybody ever asked that? You just kind of took it for granted? How about if somebody would have asked you? If Caesar is the leader of the Roman Empire, why is there a king in Judea? Right? We learned something. History. Now, there were many Herods, by the way. We don't have time to get into that. But I believe this is the same Herod of Jesus. No, no, no. No, this is the second. There's three. There was the father, Herod, the middle Herod. The middle Herod was Jesus, and then he died, and then the next Herod came in, that son, and this is the son. This Herod right here, I believe, is the Herod that killed John the Baptist. I told myself not to bring up the Herod issue because I'm like, I don't know which one it is. Just find out which Herod this is. I, is this, I believe this is the same Herod that killed John the Baptist, but not the one that killed the firstborn in Jesus' time. There was at least three, three people in, in the household of Herod that took on that name. Could be more, but I know there's at least three. Then Herod went from Judah, Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they joined together and sought an audience with them. After securing the support of Blastus, there's a cool name. It's not a Christian name, but it's just a cool name, Blastus. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. See, there we hear that Herod's a king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's on the king's country for their food supply. So the king had a country. Does everybody get that? And Tyre and Sidon were, were being rebellious towards this king, and the Romans would only get involved if they couldn't settle it themselves. And so it looks like it gets settled here because they're like, well, we kind of want to stay on good ter- terms with Herod because we're getting our food from there. On the, day, uh, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish. Why do I think that uh, they, enco- they, they include this encounter here with uh, the angel of the Lord with Herod is because the people had a very similar understanding of what had already happened. This is a letter that's going out to people living at this time, and they, the Christians want to tell them, we believe this was an angel sent by God that cursed this man because he was putting us in prison. So let's look at what Josephus, a non-Christian, who provides a Jew, who provides one of the best histories of the Jewish people during the time of Jesus in the early church, and is known for a lot of his attestations of, of things we have in the Bible, like the church history and with the life of Jesus. What do we find out? Herod Agrippa. Herod Antipas killed. So it's a different Herod. So how many Herods were there? Herod Antipas killed John the Baptist. Herod Agrippa dies here. And there's Agrippa too that Paul talks. And then what about Paul talks to you later? Because I remember him saying Herod Agrippa. So there must be four. And then there's the Herod that killed uh, Herod the Great. So there was a total of four. Thank you for clarifying. So let's just say it again. Four Herods. Herod the Great 
is the one that killed the firstborn during Jesus' time. Then he dies, and that's when they come back from Egypt into uh, Israel and live in um, Nazareth. And then uh, there's the Herod that killed John the Baptist because he was having an adulterous affair, and John called him out on that. And then now there's Herod, the first Agrippa, this one right here, that dies because of this uh, being struck down with the Lord. And then I, I assume it's his son, Herod Agrippa II, becomes the one that Paul deals with later on in the book of Acts, correct? Okay, good. So why do I want to read from Josephus now? Because I want to show you that this is another attestation or another proof that Luke is a historian of the first order. There's nobody better than Luke during this time period that we can go back to and understand history. And so if you want to be skeptical of Luke, you've got to be skeptical of the history of Rome. And you'll hear this a lot when we're defending the Bible. Uh, if these things are not true, then Caesar did not cross the Kublai Khan. And let's make sure I'm saying that word right, the Kublai Khan. Sounds like a crazy word. It's a river, and it's a historical a fact that he did this great thing, and he trekked across the, the river, you know, and, and, and did this great feat and brought his, uh, his army to the other side and kept conquering. Rubicon, not Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan sounds like, you know, like a fictional character of something, but Rubicon. Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Okay, let's listen to Josephus give attestation to this story that Luke brings up. This is in the Expositor's Bible Commentaries, a quotation of uh, Josephus. After the completion of the third year of his reign over the whole of Judea, Agrippa came to the city of Caesarea. Right there. Do you understand? Identical to the story right here. Identical. Identical. The same thing. He's coming from one place to the other, and boom, here it is. And he had been he, where he celebrated spectacles in honor of Caesar. On the second day of the spectacles, clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that it was, its texture was indeed wondrous. He entered a theater at daybreak. So now it talks about the clothes. Here it says that he's wearing his royal clothes, his royal robes. Here it describes the kind of royal clothes they are. Are you guys listening to this? There the silver illuminated by the touch of the rays of the sun was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gaze intently upon it. Straightway his, flatter, his flatteries raised their voices, this is like his fans, raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his good, addressing him as a god. Wow, this is from Josephus, a Jewish historian. May you be propitious to us, they added. And if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agreed that you are no more mortal in your being. So if we've once thought of you as a man, now we think of you as God. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. But shortly thereafter, he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope over his head, at once recognizing this as a harbinger of woes, just as had at once been of good tidings. He felt a stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once, and that was intense from the start. Leaping up, he said to his friends, I, a God in your eyes, am now bidden to lie down my life, lay down my life, for fate brings immediate refutation of the lying words lately addressed to me. I, who was called immortal by you, am now under sentence of death, but I must accept my lot as God wills it. In fact, I have lived in no ordinary fashion, but in the grand style that is hailed as true bliss. And so it goes on. 
Are there some differences? Yes. It says that he now sees uh, in his death the judgment of God of some way. And he admits he's been blessed by God, right? And here we just see the story reduced down to God cursed him and he died. Once again, is this a contradiction? No, this is complimenting. This is surround sound. This is giving historical evidence that this happened. Now somebody may say, well, it was just something that happened and the church now uh, adds to this. It was a curse. He just got sick and died. But hold on, hold on. Why is it in Josephus' writing, is it attached to him being called a god? See, it sounds like Luke adds the part that Josephus doesn't. And would Josephus have reason not to tell the whole story if maybe he had learned this from the church? Yes, because this would give proof to Jesus being God. That when he, as a man, tries to be God and arrest and kill the Christians, God judges him and shows him he's just a mere man. And so I could see Josephus having reason to leave out the details. But the church gives us the answer. Now it's up to you, the reader. We're Christians and we take it as the word of God. But it would be up to you, the reader of that time, receiving the letter of uh, Luke and maybe knowing the history of uh, this death of Herod, knowing it from maybe your peers or a Josephus-type person talking to you because they would spread news that way, word of mouth. And so you would now have a choice to believe. Did Herod die of natural causes? And is it just a coinkydink that it was attached to him being called God and dressing up and having the sun you know, shine and make him look like a God? Is that a coincidence? Or is it because he was killing Christians, thinking he was God, and God struck him down? So put yourself in the shoes of the early church the believers, before they even knew that Luke was a part of the gospel. You know, you're just being told this. Like, here's the history from Luke. You're one of Paul's churches now, you know. You've gotten the gospel of Luke, the history of Acts, uh, written by Luke of the church, and maybe now you've got one or two letters. You live in Galatia. you got Galatians, or you got Ephesians. What do you think? What do you do? I trust my apostles, right? I'm trusting that this is what God is doing. I'm trusting that this is what happened. And so, once again, how would we know it was an angel of the Lord? Well, you probably put together the story of Josephus hearing some of the things coming from Herod's mouth and what we would now know that people of Herod's household are getting saved in different times. You know, I don't know which Herod those would be. We'd have to go and look at it. But we know people in these places were saved and getting saved. And so more than likely, the story goes even to more depth to where he might have even proclaimed, I was struck down by the Lord and now I'm repenting for what I've done. And wouldn't it be something? I mean, here's just going off on a limb. We don't know all of this, but wouldn't it be something if we actually saw Herod in heaven? It just is all conjecture. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say we know, but wouldn't that be something? He's killing Christians. He gets struck down. He recognizes it as an angel of the Lord. He actually tells his attendants, I'm being struck down for these things, and now I'm repentant for what I've done. Could it be? You know, there's old um, uh, history, there's history that kind of follows these people, uh, not, not this one that I know of, but like, uh, you know, how uh, Pilate washed his hands of Jesus. There's, there's, there's church history, that could be a wife tale, we don't know, that for the rest of his life, he went, in, you know, went insane and kept doing this with his hands, you know, because he wanted to be free from that guilt, you know. Or there's stories about his wife, you know, because she had these visions that she does become a Christian, you know. Uh, the, the, you know, there's a movie that, that came out not too long ago, 
about the soldier who stood at the side of Jesus, you know. And some of these stories could be mythological, and some of them could be true. We don't know. And then just looking at the narrative here, you can kind of ask yourself these questions. How do we know it was an angel that, that killed him? Did he see the angel? Did someone uh, in its attendance do it? Did he repent? Uh, Josephus seems like he now knows that he was... Um, uh, in some way, uh, his fate was sealed after they had been calling him a god. That it was a fate, you know, something was being held out against him. Did he see that fate as judgment as he saw that owl, right? We, we don't know. But those are the kinds of things we can ask ourselves. And then lastly here in, in the final verse, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Quick question to see if you got it. I mentioned it before. I didn't catch it until I went over it a few times because uh, Paul goes on three missionary journeys. He doesn't start his missionary journey until the church sends him out with Barnabas. But it says here they had returned and finished their mission. What mission is this? What mission is this? And I give professors the opportunity to guess as well. I mentioned it briefly here when we were looking over the timeline. Yes? No, it has nothing to do with Galatians. Think about where he's coming from, and think about now I give you guys permission if you want to look it up. Go to the end of chapter 11. Go to the end of chapter 11. What is it? No. He's coming to Antioch from where? Jerusalem, okay. But what's the mission? Go to the end of uh, chapter 11. Yes, good job, Professor Jared, earning his stripes. I love it when he shows up like that and shows off. There it is. And I mentioned it before. At the end of chapter 11, as we can see right here, uh, he has to go and bring the relief to the people because this was prophesied during Agabus's time. And so they had the, the monies raised in Antioch and all these different places, and they sent uh, Paul and Barnabas to go and do it. So if you look at chapter divisions, you actually miss what's going on right there, don't you? You miss it, because I know I did, and I was going like, they're returning from a mission, because I know in chapter 13 is when he sent out on his mission. So I was like, where did I miss it here? What mission is he on? Because I'm literally looking at chapter breaks as if it's like, uh, you know, like something in the story that says, stop thinking that this is one, one story, like it's a new story or something, you know? Because in Acts chapter 13, it says, now there were in the church, uh, this we'll get to when we get back from the break, uh, in Antioch, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simon that were called Niger and Lucius, and he names off all these people. And then it says, uh, as they ministered to the Holy Spirit, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I've called them, right? So uh, we begin to see here that they start that first missionary journey. But the language of chapter 12, uh, finishing and completing a mission, had really started at the end of chapter 11, and that was bringing relief to the brothers and sisters there. Let's get a good closing. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter, do you think you would know how to write this? Listen to this, and now see if you connect it. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. How many know Peter understands that? I never caught that before until now. That's when I made this. I was like, oh my gosh, this is Peter. He's talking to these people in trials, connected together. 
Not every time do we get delivered from death. Sometimes we will die. But even then, we get delivered from death in the sense it's not final. There's a world to come. So Peter's like, whether you die like James or you get rescued like me, listen, God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You're going to get rescued. There's, there's going to be a reconciliation of this world. And guess what? And he knows how to hold, watch, the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Who did he see get punished that had him arrested? Herod. saw that before. You ain't never saw that. That was downloaded from the Holy Spirit. Downloaded from the Holy Spirit. In chapter 12, Peter's rescued, Herod's judged. By the time he's writing epistles, he says, the Lord knows how to rescue you. I've been there. And the Lord knows how to judge the ones who are persecuting us. I've seen it happen. Get that. Seriously, get that in your spirit. Man, I don't need the mmms and ahs. I appreciate them, though. It's okay. But I'm not doing it for that or the hand. I'm getting, when, I, when I turned around and gave a hand clap, that's for Jesus. I'm not doing this to be showboat. I'm an expressive person, so don't get me wrong. And I like it when you guys get your mmm on. That's okay. But I'm saying I'm not doing it for that. You need to get it in your spirit today because it's just, it's just reality, friends. It's only getting worse. Now, do I believe it can get better? I do. But I think it's going to get a lot more worse before it gets better. Before we see revival in the land, which is my desire, is that we see it, another great outpouring like we've ne- the world has never seen. And from there, we get raptured, and then all the judgment comes. So I just, I just believe that's how it's going to end. There's going to be a lot of trials that we face. And you've got to trust God. Whether you're James or Peter, you've got to trust him. Whether you're going to die today or live to fight another day, trust him. And then the same thing is with these people doing the things they're doing to us. Man, whether you get judged now like Herod or on that day where he comes and sets his feet upon the mountain of olives with New Jerusalem, you know, and all that, you are going to be judged for this. You don't get away with it. Amen? Let's trust God. Let's walk with him through our trials and believe that judgment is coming. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that you have spoken your word to us through the life of Peter, showing us how you rescue people and you take care of us. And when it's not our time, you deliver us. And Lord, even like with James, when it's time to die, you deliver us from the valley of the shadow of death. You deliver us from hell and the grave. And James was in your presence at the moment his life was taken. And Lord, you've taught us today also to remember that you judge those who live wickedly, some upon this earth immediately, like Herod, who thought he was God, that thought he could take control of your church and do what he wanted with these precious disciples. You showed us that you can judge them immediately like you did even in modern times like with these different world empires and rulers like Saddam Hussein or Omar Gaddafi or Hitler, how they die and they suffer in this world. But God, you've also taught us to know that there's a final judgment where nobody gets away with it. That Lord, you hold everyone accountable. And so let us be encouraged today to live boldly, fearlessly, courageously for your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen.